1: Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions
2: or tape recording. This is Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Never say never, but... Never. I plan on leading this team with an unwavering standard.
3: Everybody love everybody.
1: We will call it the golden standard. And this is the standard that will drive this football program to its 12th
2: national championship. With Sean Styers. I like that guy. Hey, what you could do is, is you could have a barbecue on that head. A good
0: time, you know what I mean?
2: On Sports Radio, 960 AM, WSBT.
0: He's running down the middle by the 50. He's bare chested and banging his chest. They're chasing him. They're not going to get him.
1: And now your host, Sean Hey there, and welcome to Wednesday's Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beats. Hope you're having a great day. First round of the NFL draft is tomorrow night. Is that music to your ears? Sounds pretty good to me. I like it. I like it. First round, I think, you know, it's going to lack some local pizzazz since the Bears and Colts don't have picks until Friday's second round. But from a Notre Dame standpoint, Kyle Hamilton is all but a lock to be the first Notre Dame player taken in the first round of the draft in the last three years. And I didn't even realize it's already been three years now since they had a first round draft pick. And maybe it's because we thought we were going to see one last year, but it didn't quite work out that way. I mean, it still worked out pretty well because the Irish had a record eight players drafted last year, but none of them went in the first round. And Again, I had kind of forgotten that. The highest player selected last year, do you remember who it was? Liam Eichenberg, 42 overall by Miami. And then Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa, who was originally projected as a first-round guy, ended up being the third Fighting Irish player selected in the second round last year. Do you remember who the other one was? Aaron Banks. That's right. Aaron Banks. But uh, and a record eight players drafted last year. None of them, though, in the first round. Three in the second round. Cole Komet was the top Irish player in 2020. He went to the Bears at 43. So that's kind of interesting. Eichenberg went at 42 last year, the year before Komet, 43. Those were the, the highest drafted players the last two years. But uh, do you know, do you remember? I know I'm quizzing you right now. Maybe it's annoying you. Do you remember <laughs> who Notre Dame's last first round pick was? Can you can you tell me? Can you tell me? Ooh, 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 ooh. Horseshack. Horseshack, you. Jerry Tillery by the Chargers in 2019, which was uh, a year after, of course, Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey both went in the first round. Both of them top nine picks. Nelson went sixth overall to the Colts. McGlinchey went ninth to San Francisco. And No debate about Kyle Hamilton's talent. I think we can, you know, at least agree on that. But, you know, most of the talent evaluators and draft analysts have him as a top 10 talent still right now. They rate him as one of the top 10 players. But as we all know, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to go in the top 10. There's always still going to be potentially some movement, you know, and there was. There was even early talk about him being a top five guy, but that kind of went away after the four-five-nine forty time at the combine, and then didn't get get it any faster at the uh, the Notre Dame Pro Day either. But the only the only real debate with Hamilton, I think, you know, I, I guess there can be some debate because of the forty time and all that. But to me, the biggest debate with Hamilton seems to be his position still, because he is still a consensus. First round pick. It's a matter of where he goes and how you regard him based on the position he plays. Like, is safety a premium enough position to be taking in the top 10 or, you know, wh- wherever you want to put it high in the first round, mid first round, any of that kind of stuff? Here's how one NFL general manager broke it down for the athletic. Quote, and this is, again, from an unnamed NFL current general manager quote if you think he's an impact player for your football team regardless of the position and you feel comfortable taking the player you take him if you pass on the player to go in another direction you've either got to position yourself to get back into the first round or you're going to lose him if you think he's good for your football team will make a huge impact checks all your boxes is the best player on your board you take him if he helps you win football games three years down the road if he's productive In helping your football team, you're going to be ticked off that you took this position, whether it's safety, tight end, guard, whatever. Who cares where you took him? End quote. And that's from an NFL general manager talking about how you evaluate, you know, Kyle Hamilton and the fact that he plays safety and not cornerback or quarterback or left tackle or defensive end, you know, edge rusher, whatever it happens to be. This is basically the Quentin Nelson conversation from four years ago, right? Because great guard, but do you take a guard that high? you, You know, is a guard worthy of a top 10 pick? And I think everyone kind of fell into that because guards don't get taken high in the first round. Well, the Colts had the number six pick that year and the Colts had a bad offensive line and they had to get better on the offensive line because at that time they had Andrew Luck who had already been beaten up and they had to protect Andrew Luck. So they went with the best offensive lineman available, and that was Quentin Nelson. And four years later, and three first team all pro selections later, one second team all pro pick uh later, they have no regrets about taking Quentin Nelson with the number six pick. Anyone in the NFL would love to have had Quentin Nelson, you know, for the last four years. Quentin Nelson's been one of the best players in the NFL, regardless of position. You know, he made the Colts better. That's And, you know, he's an elite offensive lineman. Again, first-team All-Pro three of the four years that he's been in the NFL and second-team All-Pro the other time. So, you know, the Jets, now when you spin this back and, and look at Kyle Hamilton, the Jets, the Texans, the Lions, the Falcons, the Vikings, they were all among the teams, they are among the teams, drafting near the top of the first round or in that range, you know, down into middle of the first round where Hamilton could go. They all had bad defenses. Last year, I mean, if you're picking that high, odds are you've got bad defense. You know, obviously Jacksonville is up at the top. They're not going to take a safety at the top of the draft. You know, they 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 need. Uh, well, you're just not going to take a safety at number one. Kyle Hamilton would have, would have had to have been our all world safety for the last three years. But you know, these teams, if they ask the question, does Kyle Hamilton make our defense better? The answer is yes. So it doesn't matter. That he's a safety. He's going to make their defense better. And I don't want to hear this stuff. It's it's nonsense about, oh, do you drop him down? Do you, do you play him at linebacker? Marcus Freeman was on the NFL Network the other day. He's like, no, he's not a linebacker. He's a safety. That's, <laughs> that's just what he is. Now, in every safety, there's a little bit of linebacker because you got to come down a hill and you got big impacts and you make tackles and all that kind of stuff. But he's not a linebacker. He's a safety. That's what he is. And he's going to be a great, safety or at least a very good safety in the NFL. I think he he's probably going to slip a little outside the top 10. That's just what I think, you know, and again based on all the evaluations and all that, that's what we have to kind of ingest and and go on. A- again, because of his position, because of his 40 time, I think he slips out of the top 10. He's still going to go somewhere in the top 20. Whoever gets him is going to have one of the best safeties in the game for 10 or 12 years, you know. So we will find out tomorrow night. Draft starts at 8 o'clock, so Kyle Hamilton will probably be drafted somewhere around 10, 10.30 (laughs) by the time it's all said and done. You know, again, maybe it's a little earlier than that, but who knows. Uh, Meantime, you know, there are some announcements that when you hear the news, it's truly shocking, right? Like, Michael Jordan retires the first time after back-to-back championships. Shocking! Barry Sanders hangs it up at 31 years old. That's shocking! Magic Johnson announced he's retiring due to HIV. I mean, truly shocking. Odds are you remember where you were for at least a couple of those announcements. You know, like even Brian Kelly going to LSU. That was pretty shocking, I think, after he had been here for 12 years and all that he had done pretty much unprecedented, you know, both the way he left and the fact that he did leave Notre Dame. But you hear those things, you're shocked to hear the news. Then there's other news you hear, and you just go, Well, <laughs> what took so long? <laughs> or as Curly Bill said in Tombstone, well, bye. You know, and that was my feeling after hearing the news that after 12 years as president of the NCAA, Mark Emmert has stepped down. He's going to step down uh, by June of next year. And I like how they try to spin this as well, because they you know, they send out an NCAA release that says, Emmert and the NCAA Board of Governors have reached a mutual agreement to have him step aside. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Emmert's making close to $3 bucks a year, and he has a contract that runs through 2025. I guarantee you, this was not a mutual agreement. <laughs> Leaving, what, at least $6 bucks on the table for a guy who's uh, about to, to march off into retirement the only real surprise in this is the fact that it took the ncaa 12 years to come up to the conclusion that it was just time to cut bait with mark emmert and the bigger shock maybe being that they had just renewed his contract like a year ago you know name a major issue in college athletics and emmert and the ncaa were always behind the eight ball they were never progressive never out front of any issue name image and likeness nil you know, a complete whiff on Emmert's part. He was out there begging Congress to enact some kind of national legislation on NIL. I mean, he asked Congress to do his job for him because he couldn't, he, he couldn't come up with anything himself. Though he had multiple opportunities, all he wanted to do was give it the stiff arm for as long as possible. And he sat there and waited and then all the states started doing their own thing, and then he was forced into a situation where he had no control over everything, and that's what you've got right now with NIL because he couldn't make a decision. It's the wild, wild west for NIL, and everyone's just doing their old, their own thing because he and the NCAA could not come up with its own legislation. Didn't even try to come up with its own legislation. They just wanted to stick their hand, their heads in the sand, and 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 pretend that it was never going to happen. You know, the whole Title IX issues with the inequities between the men's and women's NCAA basketball tournaments last year, all on Emmert. He's, he's just always been a guy with the classic excuse, you know, classic excuse maker rather than a problem solver. He's never been considered, you know, good in public. You rarely see him speak in public. And then when he did, you know, like when he's awarding the, the national championship trophy to, to Kansas for the basketball tournament, Earlier this month, he calls them the Kansas City Jayhawks instead of the Kansas Jayhawks. And, you know, all this happens at a time when Jack Swarbrick was just quoted a few days ago in an article saying that college sports as we know it may just all blow up within the next 10 or so years. And so now the NCAA, got to find a, a new president. There's really no easy and obvious answer. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, I've already seen some some names floated out there, you know, Condoleezza Rice being one of them. We, we, we don't need more bureaucrats in this. We need younger people who are progressive in these areas where the NCAA has not been willing to be progressive traditionally, someone who can connect with and communicate both with both sides of this, the student athletes and administrators, you know, that's That's what it's going to take. Someone who understands it is 2022, not 1982. That's that's who they need in charge in this next go-around. That's what they've got to find, and that's a big challenge for them because it's an organization that has, again, been behind the eight ball on virtually everything for about as long as I can remember. We're going to take a timeout when we come back. Again, it is 2002 College World Series reunion weekend for Notre Dame baseball. Uh, A lot of members of that team are going to be in town this weekend. They will be recognized Saturday prior to the Notre Dame-Boston College game at Frank X Stadium, and uh, they're going to be uh, holding some different events here this weekend as they get back together, uh, the 2002 Notre Dame College World Series team, and you'll hear from the head coach of that team, Paul Maneri, after we take a timeout. Budweiser's Weekday Sports beat is brought to you by Budweiser, the King of Beers, locally distributed by United Beverage Company of South Bend. Sports fans, this Bud's for you. Tim Grau State Farm Insurance, save money on home and auto insurance with Tim, serving both Indiana and Michigan. Call 574-232-9981. Barnaby's of Mishawaka and Granger, serving our community while serving Michiana's most favorite pizza since 1978. The Food Bank of Northern Indiana. Hunger's a story we can end. Find out how at feedindiana.org. Palm area, more Notre Dame uh, baseball and Budweiser's weekday sports beat coming up next on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. <laughs> area having a final chat with Joe Thayman before Joe steps into the batter's box. Notre Dame trailing 3-2. to two. The Irish have come from behind 21 times to win this year. Can they do it? for a 22nd time? Turn on the jet, Steve Stanley!
3: Back to the wall it goes! Steve Stanley will fly it in safely with a one-out
4: and Notre Dame has a tying run at third base. Coleman lines it up the middle and the game is tied. We're tied at three in a brand new ball game. Breaking ball.
2: Slam to right. That one going back. And it is. Out of the ballpark. Home run. Brian Stavisky. It's the ball game and the Irish will play for another day.
1: Well, it has been 20 years since Paul Maneri led Notre Dame to the College World Series and uh, that of course was uh, part of that uh, fantastic ninth inning against the Rice Owls in an elimination game at the College World Series in 2022 and happy as always to be joined by the one and only Paul Maneri. How we doing today Paul?
3: Well, Sean, let me tell you. Listening to those radio calls from 20 years ago that you did still brings tears to my eyes and makes my body go numb. I'm telling you, <laughs> seems like it was just yesterday. Some of the most special Man. moments of my personal life. I can tell you that
1: it does. I mean, it's like when when the calendar flipped around and I went 20 years. It's, it's like, <laughs> it's. I mean, and it's got to be. It, that has to happen to you all the time. As 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 many teams as you've coached and as many different players as you've worked with I'm sure you've got to just kind of sit there every now and then (laughs) and think the same thing you know just like where did it where did all that time go
3: isn't that the truth Sean I mean at times it makes me feel very old but uh, I tell you I'm the luckiest guy in the world to do exactly what I wanted to do with my life for 39 years I got to be a head coach in college and those 12 years I spent at Notre Dame will always be the most special time of my life, taking that team to the College World Series. Really not even just that one year, you know, the, the years leading up to that, the four years with Aaron Heilman and Danny Tamayo and Alec Porzell, they were not able to be a part of that team, but they sure felt like it. Brant Dust, Alan Green, the years before and then the years after, you know, that we just had so many wonderful kids. And uh, every time I think about those days, it just, like I said, brings a smile to my face, and I just feel like the luckiest guy in the world that have had the privilege of, of being the baseball coach at Notre Dame for 12 years.
1: Well, and that's, you know, I think that because that team got to the College World Series, that's the one that we always think about. But there were guys on that team, and, and we've talked about this before. I, I had you on back in the summer right after you retired, and we talked a little bit about the, uh, the Notre Dame team, of course, last year that, that went to Starkville, Mississippi to, uh, to play Mississippi State in the Super Regional. And your team in 2000 went there, battled their way into the championship round, came up a little bit short. You got to host a regional the next year in 2001, end the season with the tying run standing at third base in that game. And and so 2002 was, was a culmination of a lot of things, wasn't it?
3: It really was. And, uh, you know, we finally were able to kick the door in. In fact, I was playing golf this morning with somebody and I, and I told him that, you know, even though, uh, you know, we, we went to the World Series, I think the most special moment of the year was when we won the Big East tournament and beat Rutgers in an extra inning game in the championship game right. because it really got the monkey off our back. You know, we had had so many good teams, won the regular season championship, made it to the finals of the conference tournament, it had a heartbreaking loss here and there. And, you know, you just felt like, you know, when are we going to win this conference tournament? And I feel like when we won the tournament that year and we beat, beat, like I said, we beat Rutgers in 10 innings when Stavisky hit a ball in the left field corner and Solman scored from first base. I felt like like the the gorilla got off our back. And from that point on, our players just played so relaxed and confident. You know, we went to, uh, we hosted the regional. Not only did we beat Ohio State twice, but we sandwiched those wins with probably the greatest, single-game performance of any team I've ever coached in my life when we beat South Alabama 25-1. to 1, They were the number one seed. You remember that game, I'm sure, Sean. Oh, absolutely. We had absolutely. 32 hits and, and only gave up one hit. Grant Johnson pitched a one-hit complete game. We had 32 hits, yep. including 14 for extra bases and seven home runs. And, we, you know, we zipped through the regional, and then, of course, we went down to Tallahassee where we played the, the unequivocally number one team in the country on a 25-game winning streak, and we beat them twice down there and uh, went to Omaha and then had that great win that you described some of those radio calls against the new number one team in the country, Rice. So, you know, at times I think back and, I, and I, I'm really kind of upset that we didn't win the whole thing because those kids had some special qualities about them and Unfortunately, we had two heartbreaking losses to Stanford out in Omaha. But yep. what a year and what what an era, really. Well,
1: you know, you mentioned that Big East tournament, and I was trying to think, because, again, you had never won the Big East tournament before. You had you'd finished first in the regular season and, and had regular season conference championships. I, I'm, I was trying to remember, how, how confident did you feel that you were even going to get an NCAA bid if you didn't win the Big East tournament?
3: Oh, I felt very confident we were going to get a bid. Uh, I mean, we started out the season 9 and 10. Right, and that's kind of... of our starting lineup was hurt. I right. mean, Thaman was hurt. Solman was hurt. We lost two shortstops and had to put Javi Sanchez in at short, who hadn't played shortstop even in high school. Right. Andy Bushey was hurt. Paulo O'Toole was hurt. Brian Stavisky was hurt. Uh, the only guys that weren't hurt were Stanley, Kenny Meyer, uh, I think Chris Billmeyer. And only because those guys played so great that we were even nine and ten. I remember Sean, we were on the bus heading to the airport at O'Hare to fly to Omaha, and the writer from USA Today newspaper called me to do an article about the Irish. and he And he asked me. He said, "What were you think? Were you thinking about Omaha when you were nine and ten?" <laughs> and, and I said, "You want to know the truth of what I was thinking?" And he said, "Yes." I said. I was really happy we had won nine games at that point. <laughs> we were right. the walking wounded. I mean, if Stanley and Kenny Meyer and Chris Billmeyer weren't playing out of their heads, we, we wouldn't even have won nine games. But we had some horrific injuries. And then finally, when everybody got healthy, after that 9-10 and 10 start, we went 41-8 and eight the rest of the way. And by the way, after we won that Big East tournament in 2002, we ended up winning five straight which had never been done before but once we it was like once we got the monkey off our back and knew what it felt like you know we went to that big east tournament every year and and won it and and so we never had to sweat out selection day for the ncaa tournament
1: Paul pulmonary with us the uh, former head coach of the notre dame baseball team just retired at lsu last year after a hall of fame career and of course led the 2002 notre dame team to the College World Series and reliving the uh, the 20th anniversary of that. Some memories of that. What – there were so many, you know, Steve Stanley was the Big East Player of the Year and All-American that year, and you rattled off a bunch of those other names. What What was it, do you think – how was that team able to have that kind of resolve and turn things around the way they were able to that you were just described there?
3: Well, first of all, let me say this, Sean. I thought the 2001 team was the best team I ever had. Yeah. Aaron Drumman was a senior and he went fifteen and 0 in fifteen starts. Danny Tamayo was a senior number two pitcher, went ten and one. Alec Porzell was our starting shortstop and our three hole hitter as a senior. That team that team was phenomenal mm-hmm. all year. And then we had two injuries right before the the regional. Steve Solman got hit by a pitch at the Big East tournament, broke his hand. Right and Chris Billmeyer had a a nerve problem with, you know, down his leg, and he he couldn't play for about two or three weeks. Our kids played so courageously in that regional tournament the year before, and when we got upset in the finals by, like you said, we had the tying run at third, um, and Florida International beat us, I'm telling you, I was so distraught after the game and after, you know, the season ended because I thought that was the best team we'd ever had. And I just remember, you know, driving into my driveway two days later, and my phone rang, and it was my college coach, Ron Maystreet, and and he gave me the most encouraging words. Uh, He was my coach at the University of New Orleans, and he said, you know, in 1979, that was when I was a senior in college, we had a great team at UNO, and we lost in the regional at Mississippi State, ironically, and I remember Ron Maystreet being so down in the dumps, and he called me, and he said, you know, when we lost in 1979, he said, I thought I'd never take a team to Omaha because that was the best team I'd ever had. He said, but a few years later, 1984, we went to Omaha with a team not quite as good as as the 79 team, and then he told me, he says, you're going to go to Omaha when people least expect it. <laughs> well, the next year, the next year, you know, we had three of our four starting pitchers were freshmen. Grant Johnson, Chris Niesel, and John Axford were all freshmen. Pete he was the only upperclassman in our rotation, and and those kids, because of how quickly they came along as freshmen, Brian O'Connor was our pitching coach, did a phenomenal job with those guys. But, but the, the core of our position player team, Stanley and O'Toole and Kenny Meyer and Solman and all those guys that I already mentioned, Paul O'Toole, they, they had such determination and such confidence in themselves that even when we started out 9 and 10, they realized it was because we had had so many injuries, and once those guys came back and were healthy, they knew that we had a great team, and we just took it one day at a time. And including the two losses in Omaha, like I said, we went forty-one and eight the rest of the way. I mean, we played great baseball for a long period of time. Oh,
1: absolutely, absolutely, and that you know, like thinking about, the, I was thinking about this, that pitchings that you just mentioned. Those guys on the staff, Niesel and and Grant Johnson, were two really good. Freshman that year, but like Niesel missed a good chunk of the season with mono. So he was out for a while. J.P. Gagne starts the season kind of as a midweek starter. He ends up being your closer with that big changeup at the end of the year. And through the whole thing, you know, like you've got the conference player of the year and Steve Stanley position players and a couple other guys who made all conference. You had no all conference pitchers even on a team that ends up in Omaha. That's just amazing to me. Well,
3: I, I vividly remember making that decision to move Ganya from starting rotation into the bullpen, and we were able to do that because of Niesel's uh, returning to health after Mono. Uh, JP's last start, he pitched a complete game, two to one victory over BYU, and he was outstanding. Yeah. And after you know a couple of days after the game, I brought him into the office and I said, JP, you're you're pitching great, and I said the missing thing that we need for this team is to have somebody that can close games. We can't win a championship without having a closer. And you, with that great changeup, you have the best chance because you're composed, you're poised, you're a competitor, you're confident, and you've got an out pitch. And I said, I really want to move you to the closer's role. And, of course, J.P. being the most unselfish kid you can imagine, he was all in for it. Well, how did did we go to Omaha, Sean? You remember those calls, the ninth (laughs) inning against Florida State, three-to-one lead, and we we go out to the field. Hey, listen, we're going out to the field. We're three outs away from going to Omaha. Man, I'm in the dugout. My hands are sweating. I'm pacing in the dugout, and I can't even hardly watch because you know I'm so nervous about it, and I look up as JP throws the first pitch to the first batter of the ninth inning. I look up just as he's delivering the pitch, and it's about 92 on the knees uh, on the corner. And I thought to myself, hey, this could be good. This ninth <laughs> inning could be really good.
1: <laughs> and then,
3: of course, J.P. struck out the side. It, it took about five minutes, thank God. I don't think I would have survived. It took five minutes for him to strike out the side and send us to Omaha. And what a moment that was for everybody.
1: I mean, he was amazing in Tallahassee when you sit back and, and think about it. he In in the first win, in the in the opening win, well, for for one, Florida State had won 25 in a row, and, and as you said, they're ranked number one in the country going in. And he ends up what a three-inning save, <laughs> where he retires nine in a row, and then he 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 just mows them down in the in the decider one two three to go to Omaha in the deciding game in game three as well. Well,
3: that first game, as you mentioned, uh, I, I'll never forget. You know, we had won the regional back then. They didn't have the bracket set up in advance. Right. So they reshuffled the deck after the Super Regionals, and, and the number one seed was Florida State, and they matched us up against them. So they must have assumed we were the 16th seed, right? Right. And, um, and so when I, I got word that we were going to Florida State, I remember meeting with the team in the, in the uh, locker room, and they're all sitting on their stools in front of the locker room, and I'm pacing in front of them, and I said, no, this is a big deal we're going to Florida state. We're going to play, Tallahassee. We're going to Tallahassee to play Florida state. They're the number one team in the country. They've won 25 in a row. They won the regular season. They won the tournament title. You know, they had, they didn't go to Omaha last year and they hadn't been, uh, there hadn't been two consecutive years of them not going to Omaha since like 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier. Right. So I looked them up, looked at them all in the eye and I said, seems to me we got them right where we want them. <laughs> and everybody <laughs> smiled. And I said, we're going to go down there, and we're going to whip these guys. And I'll tell you why we're going to whip them, because we're better than they are. And I really believed in my heart that we were a better team. So when we went down there in that first game, and they're, you know, they, they, they were unbeatable, and, and we go out and Stabisky had a two-run homer in the first inning. We jumped out to a 4 5 nothing lead. They came back and tied the game. And then we exploded, and I think we we, we scored uh, six or so an, unanswered runs. I think we were up like 11 to 5. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, J.P. pitched three great uh, innings, you know. And uh, I, I'll tell you, after the game, I was meeting with the media, and, you know, I tried to be friendly with the media and very respectful. And somebody asked a question, you know, about, you know, what an upset this game was. I remember slapping my hand on the table and saying hey, this was no upset. We came here <laughs> expecting to win. And I got up and walked out, <laughs> and the people were like stunned. And I'll tell you, if it didn't rain the next day, I think we would have beaten them the next day. But uh, we had to, they got a day to kind of regroup. Right. They, they barely beat us, even though they, they, they got a lot of hits in the, on the, you know, the, the, the second game on Sunday. But then we went out and beat them on Monday. Three to one, and I remember after the game meeting with the media, and one of the reporters asked, uh, "You know, are you surprised that your team could come down here and beat this great <laughs> Florida State team two out of three games?" And you remember what I said? I said, "Yeah, I'm really surprised. I honestly thought we were going to win it two straight." That's
1: right. <laughs> I was pretty cocky back then. <laughs> Those guys didn't know what to think. This little old Northern Notre Dame team coming down there, Tallahassee. Uh, Just completely, you know, obviously uh, disrupting everything in their world. That that Stavisky home run you talked about, Paul, he hits it over. They they essentially have like a green monster type, you know, wall in right. It was in right field instead of left field. And it was just a gargantuan shot, as you obviously know. How much do you think that set the tone for the weekend?
3: Oh, they – And behind that, they had a circus across the street, remember? That's right. (laughs) Oh, when he hit that ball. Well, Stanley, I think, led off the game with a base hit. And then Solman lined one out, I think, at the wall. And they were lucky that that wasn't a home runner off the wall. Uh, Remember, Solman had gone six for seven with seven RBIs against South Alabama and hit two home runs. And he smoked one in there. Center fitter was lucky to have caught it in the gap. And then this gets up and hits one about 450 feet. And I just think <laughs> we set the tone right then and there that, Hey, we came down here to play baseball. We're not, we're not down here, you know, in awe of anybody. And, uh, Oh, it was just, I had such great confidence in our players, Sean, like, because as you said that it was a culmination of a period of time and, we had it had, you know, we had played great the two years before in the regionals. Played I was so proud of the team, even though we didn't win the regionals, they had played so great and I felt so bad for them and I knew that they were coming back for that last year with such determination to get over the hump and and we did.
1: Well, and I played those highlights of that elimination game against Rice in Omaha and Brian Stavisky ends up with a walk off home run. You you've got you start at the bottom of the order. You got Joe Thamen leading off, and then you go to the top: Stanley Solman, mm-hmm. Stavisky. You're down a run, obviously. Do you remember anything you were you were thinking, anything you were saying oh. before that ninth inning? Sure.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. I remember everything. <laughs> I remember how it's going. Of course. I remember every pitch. <laughs> You know, Joe, Joe uh, Thamen led off, and, he, and they were facing this left-hander Crowder from Rice, who had mm-hmm. not given up a run in all of the postseason between their conference tournament, regional, super regional, and now we're in the World Series. And they had just lost 2-1 to one to Texas in the first game, and Crowder had not pitched. And they were saving, they were saving Crowder, okay? So we, the game started. They pitched Philip Humber against us. Who also was a first round draft choice, yep. and we scratched a couple of runs against him, and uh, you know, uh, but we were losing going to the ninth inning. Crowder had been in the game for three or four innings, and he was carving us up with all our left-handed hitters. And he faced Thamen who was left-handed. The first batter, he popped up the first, and then Stanley's up, another left-handed hitter, and uh, the count goes three and zero. And I gave Steve Stanley a take sign, and then on three one, I gave him another take sign, and Crowder popped two strikes right in there. Stanley steps out of the batter's box, restraps his batting gloves, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is going to be really good. You know, <laughs> this is going to be a great battle between Stanley and this really outstanding pitcher. And I think Stanley fouled off three or four balls on full count, mm-hmm. and then he hit one right into the, pierced the wind, right in the, in the, uh, the gap between, right, uh, r- between the right fielder and center fielder. And I'm waving Stanley. Of course, there's one out. If we can get him to third base, He's coming around second, and I'm waving him to third. Sean, I'm making deals with God that if you just let me <laughs> really be safe at third base, I promise I'll never ask for anything ever again. <laughs> so he slides into third base safely. I give him a big hug. And then I remember saying to Steve at third base, I said, okay, Solman's up. I said, there's not a person in the world that I would rather be up right now than Steve Solman, except yep. for you, of course, the guy standing at third base. <laughs> That's right. And Sol- Solomon lines the base, set up the middle to tie the game, and then Stavisky comes up, and the wind's blowing in from right field, and and he just smokes one against the mm-hmm. wind into the stands, and I just I just went numb, you know, I was so happy for our players to. It's one thing to get to Omaha, it's another thing to actually win a game when you get there. Right. And uh, and then the next night, you know, we came back to play Stanford again, and I just thought our players were so ready to play and we gave up a wind blown home run in the first inning to Sam Fold from Stanford and we just never quite could get over the hump and we lost a heartbreaking game to them we were behind the whole game by a run every time we'd score they'd score again and and we ended up losing the close game but i was just so proud of that team and i told them you know what i think on our 5th fifth, fifth reunion 5 year reunion you know i'm now at now at lsu but it, I don't care how many championships we win or how many times we go to Omaha at LSU, the most special thing in my career will always be taking the Notre Dame Fighting Irish to, to the College World Series in 2002.
1: And, again, it's it's amazing, but uh, this is uh, year 20 now since that has happened, the 20-year reunion. You guys have got uh, a little uh, your reunion coming up here, what, in about a, a month of the Boston College weekend at the end of April. You guys are going to gather and and a uh, little festivities oh, going on over there I'm so
3: oh, I'm so excited Sean you know 22 of the 30 players have, have confirmed that they're going to be able to come back for the reunion 20 years it's, it's hard to believe it's been that long you know um, but I just can't wait to see everybody and their families you know Sean as a coach you know you have your your task with putting together good teams and winning championships and you know, but for me, it was always about the development of the players, not as base, not only as baseball players, but as people, and preparing them for life after college, and when I look around at all these players that played on that team, I see, you know, wonderful husbands, great fathers, you know, they, they're all doing well in their own uh, walks of life of what they've decided to do, and You know, I knew that they would all be successful. It was just a special – all the kids I ever coached at Notre Dame were so special. You know, they just had something about them. And, and, uh, you know, we're going to get together, have some fun, and hopefully we can inspire the 2022 version of the Fighting Irish to uh, let's go. It's time to get back to Omaha, you know, 20 years later. I remember after we lost the, the last game against Stanford, I did tell the media there, I've actually made a promise that it would not be another 45 years before the Fighting Warriors <laughs> came back to Omaha. Uh, and here we're looking up, and it's, it's 20 years that, already. Yeah,
1: that's so, right.
3: <laughs> yeah, we need these guys to, to, to make me not be a liar to the media
1: that year. Absolutely. They were knocking on the door last year. Really, you know, they've hit a little bit of a speed bump. But, again, you you know, you guys proved, if nothing else, in 2002, you can hit some speed bumps and still have a really great year, and I'm sure they'll get it figured out. Over there, uh, here pretty quickly. Paul Menery, the uh, Hall of Fame head coach and uh, former Notre Dame coach, former LSU coach, won a national championship in 2009 and, of course, led that great 2002 Notre Dame team to the College World Series. It is, uh, it is always fun, Paul, and I know you've got to get going, so I'll let you uh, get rolling, but look forward to seeing you here pretty soon.
3: Sean, it's great to be with you. I miss you much and uh, miss everybody in South Bend. I'm glad my son is up there so I get always have an excuse to come back and visit. And we'll look forward to seeing everybody up there in about a month or so.
1: Absolutely. Sounds good. Take care, Paul. Great talking to you as always. All right. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Yep, absolutely. Paul Maneri, Hall of Fame head coach at Notre Dame and LSU. We'll take a timeout. Sports Center update is coming up on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Meet. Budweiser's weekday sports beat week continues on Sports Radio 960 AM, WSBT. Well, in a span of just a few hours, Notre Dame women's basketball added a pair of Pac-12 players to the roster yesterday. Talked a little bit about the first one yesterday, Jenna Brown. She's the guard from Stanford, 5'10 guard, transferring in. And then uh, after the show, Last night, a little bit later in the evening, last night, former Oregon forward Kylie Watson, who's originally from New Jersey, she announced that she's also transferring into Notre Dame to join Neil Ivy's team. So, a couple of uh, pretty big pickups for the Irish. Watson played in 32 games for the Oregon Ducks last season. She averaged only 3.8 points and 2.1 rebounds a game. But again, she's six foot four, so she fills a uh, a big need inside for the Irish with Maya Dodson leaving. And uh, Maya, Maya Dodson ended up being, uh, you know, she averaged double-digit points and uh, what about a little over seven rebounds a game, one of the top shot blockers in the nation. She's off to the WNBA, and so Watson now coming in from Oregon. She's going to be a junior this upcoming season, but she has three remaining years of eligibility because she also got – the extra COVID year of eligibility. And, of course, you know, big needs because the Irish lost three players to the transfer portal, Sam Brunel, Anaya Peoples, Abby Prohaska to the portal, and then Donson was uh, not granted the sixth year of eligibility from the NCAA due to an injury she had at Stanford. So, again, she's off to the WNBA. So that left them with a total of just five returning players from last year's team. And then, you know, Brunel and Peoples were both McDonald's All-Americans. And you go, man, you know, why, why didn't it work out? But, you know, all this different kind of stuff. Well, Brown and Watson were also McDonald's All-Americans. And they've had less production with their two teams, Stanford and Oregon, than even Brunel and Peoples had in their time here at Notre Dame. So, you know, change of scenery worked out for Maya Dodson. Hopefully things work out just as well. For these two. So now Brown and Watson coming in, both McDonald's All Americans coming out of high school. And uh, Notre Dame will also be bringing in uh, freshman KK Bransford next year, two time Ohio Ms. basketball, and another McDonald's All American next season. So a total of three former McDonald's High School All Americans coming in, and uh, will be with Neil and the Fighting Irish Women's Basketball team. Next season, so uh, some some uh, big news for him. We'll see if maybe they go out and still try to add another. Be entry you know, because again, like when you look at where the roster was, could add at least one, if not two more, you know, and and uh, kind of see where they go from there. Caitlin Gilbert also uh, has recently entered the transfer portal. It kind of seemed like she was content, you know, to end her career last year the way things ended because she basically. Stopped playing for personal reasons uh, after the season had started and then uh, never, uh, you know, she was around the team for a while, even traveled with the team for a while, but never came back and played. And uh, I guess she's going to try to give it a go someplace else next year. We'll see. Wish her well. Uh, You know, also Notre Dame hosting the 2022 ACC Women's Lacrosse Championships, this weekend at Arlotta Stadium. They're going to begin play the the Irish Will in the quarterfinals Friday. They'll play Duke at 2.30 Friday afternoon. You can get your tickets at UND.com slash buy tickets. We'll take a timeout. Sports Center update coming up. And then at the beginning of the six o'clock hour, you'll hear from Kyron Williams. And we've got rapid fire later in the six o'clock hour as well on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat.
2: You are listening to Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat
1: with Sean Stires. On Sports Radio, 960 AM, WSBT. Hour 2 of Budweiser's weekday sports beat. We've got rapid fire coming up in a little bit. A lot of different topics. Notre Dame football, NFL draft, Major League Baseball. It's all coming up in just a little bit right now. Karen Williams, one of the fighting Irish players, expected to be drafted over the next few days with the NFL draft starting tomorrow. And he recently joined the crew at Good Morning Football on the NFL Network, and I'll let you take a listen to that conversation right
2: now great when we are joined by the top running back prospects in the 22 nfl draft he's up there in that list and he was an all-ac selection a paul horning award finalist for the nation's most versatile player and a two-time russian leader for the notre dame fighting Irish. please welcome running back kyron williams what's up kyron
4: yes sir how you guys doing I'm glad to be on the show you know i oh, grew up good. watching this show so you know i'm just i'm glad to be here and actually <laughs> talk to you guys <laughs> learn some things from you guys and
2: you know from me Wow. All right, so let's, we're burying the lead here. All right, so you say you grew up watching the show. Now, we started the show in 2016. So I'm serious, were you, were you in what? Like, like eighth grade or something? No, I was in high school still. But I would still like, come home and the
4: show would be on, like my dad would be watching it. So, like, it wasn't like I've always, the, the voices are recognizable. I was, yeah, you know, I was a freshman in high school in, um, in 2016. So, like, it's just like, you know, I just, I'm able to um, recognize you guys and your voices and everything that you guys do. Well, we're incredibly flattered. Mm-hmm.
2: This this, this would be like Peter Schrager being on Johnny Carson or something like that. <laughs> now you're on the show. And let's talk, never mind us. Let's talk about you. Um, dude, you can do it all. That's why you were nominated for the versatility award. You can run through guys. You can run around guys. You can catch. You can block. You can do everything. When you get the ball in your hands, what are you thinking? What's your mindset as a ball carrier? It really is to not to be denied.
4: Um, when it really comes down to if it's in between the tackles, it's the first person has to eat dirt. So that's what um, as running backs, we always emphasize that no matter what it is, if it's ever side in between the tackles, then boom, that first person, whoever, you know, blitz in the gap or whoever's, you know, just filling the gap and that person has to miss. We can't let him take, the first person can't take it down. And also it's just a mindset to, you know, just create explosive plays. Like I wanna be the best person on the field for my team. Um, and I just want to be able to, you know, get the ball in my hand and be able to make those plays so that it sets us up for, you know, good opportunities to get in the um, in the end zone or even, you know, just set us up for um, a play that we always want to come to, and, you know, create a bigger play than what we have before.
5: You know, I was, I was on the call at the Combine and you're doing your drills and I just kind of like, I, I feel like I know you because I've watched you at Notre Dame for all of these years and in the biggest games, you put up your biggest numbers and you put, scored a ton of touchdowns. When your name comes up, one of the first things we'll talk about is your pass protection. That's not what I look at as a, as a person watching the game in real time. I look at the touchdowns, the yards. Tell us about what you do in the pass pro game and what separates you from other running backs in this draft.
4: Yeah, I just want to start by what you were saying, like, I'm not just a pass pro and back like I can do it all like um, it just being able to be to me being able to be a complete bat is the biggest thing that um, I see myself as you know not to come off the field and push on third down when I do have to you know step up and pass pro like it's just a mindset that you know I'm gonna be I'm the one that's gonna hit you first before you hit me because I know you're not expecting it so if I'm able to you know um, close the close the space and get to you early and get on um, get my hands on you and you know block you earlier than what you thought it was. It's, it's going to be a surprise for you. So you know that's what I try to key on when I'm you know in pass bro and I see the linebackers coming, like close the space and deliver the blow first because they're not going to be they're not going to be expecting it. I like it. hey Kyron, Emmanuel Sanders here. Hey, so obviously uh, in the NFL, like you, you put a lot of emphasis on being able to run the football, but also be able to catch the ball out of the backfield. Uh, what's something in your workout that you do? Do you put a lot of emphasis on catching the ball out of backfield? I see you were third in receptions uh, last year as well. So do you put
5: emphasis on that?
4: Yeah, I pride myself in being the most versatile back, um, no matter what team that I'm on, no matter what stage of life that I'm on. Like, I... I've uh, played receiver since um, my sophomore year of high school. Like, that's where I started at. It wasn't until, like, my junior year that I started playing running back. So, like, those natural things of like that a wide receiver possesses with, you know, catching with their hands and their eyes, you know, it's just natural. It's not forced. Like, those are the things that I do. I do well because, you know, I was able to be a receiver. I was able to have those real-life reps of being in the slot against game, against game times and all that. So, when it came to college, it was no different. Like, I... Um, I brought, went to Canada practice, I told Coach Reese, like, be able to allow, allow me to be able to do everything that I do and show me and showcase me in this office. And I, seen, I think that's what Coach Reese, you know, did really well. Like, he was able to you know, move me around and create up these different ma- mismatches just for um, our team and for myself as well to be successful.
0: All right, you grew up in the St. Louis area and you were a huge fan of, running, uh, of Rams running back Steven Jackson. Now, Matt Hamilton, mm-hmm. who comes up with a lot of fun nuggets for us, I can't take credit for this, but he told me that there was a rumor that you love Jackson so much that you used to wear a Dora the Explorer wig because you wanted to emulate his dreads. Now, my first question is, is that true? Secondly, guys, I don't have kids, but I thought Dora the Explorer had a blunt cut with bangs. So yeah. how did you pull that one off?
5: Mm,
2: good question.
4: <laughs> All right, so that's actually a good question. So i want to first answer your question is, um, yeah, like, Stephen Jackson was was like my idol growing up in St. Louis like I was at every Rams home game on Sunday watching the Rams and doing seeing what they do and um, being able to see Steven Jackson like just be the most dominant person on the field as a young person and you know just looking up to him it's like that's exactly who I want to be that's exactly who I want to see myself as and like going back to the wig thing was like I've always wanted my hair to come out my, my helmet, no matter what age I was at. Like, that was my one goal. I've always wanted my hair to come out my helmet, because, you know, like, Mahalu, um, Steven Jackson, like, those guys that were, you know, making plays always had their hair out their helmet. So, like, um, for that um, Halloween idea, I was like, my sister had a wig. I'm not sure if it was Doris for her. I thought it was, it might have not been, but she had a wig that had long hair and I had a fake um Rams uniform that had Steven Jackson's number, the pants and the helmet. So like I was literally like my version of Steven Jackson on Halloween with the fake hair. And I had it was all the way down, halfway down my back. Like it was the real, the real dread that I wanted.
0: The yeah. of the Explorer wig, though, really gives me the mental pr- picture that I was hoping for. That's
2: yeah.
5: great. Maybe it was uh,
2: Miss Frizzle from Magic School Bus.
5: Karen, your teammate Kyle Hamilton's also uh, foregoing his, his dra- forego the Fiesta Bowl, and he's entering the NFL draft. We're hearing his stock could be anything from top five to like sliding to the 20s because of, of the position safety tell us about kyle hampton what he brings to the table and why a team would be smart to draft him in the top 10.
4: With kyle like you get a, 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 a true complete football player like you get a guy that's disciplined who guys that you know just loves this game and loves everything about it and like he gives it his 110 percent like i remember last year um while kyle was kyle was going through what he was going through he was still a coach like he was coaching for us like he wasn't just on the sideline watching practice. He had the pen and paper in his hand. Like, he was doing things that a coach would do. So that just reflects the person of who Kyle is. And when, when it comes on the football field, everything that he brings in life, it just naturally comes in football. And like, he's able to do a lot of things that you know, most people can't do because of the God-given abilities that he has. And um, I just know, like, no matter where Kyle goes, like, um, he's a football player, and at the end of the day, football players play football. So whether that's top, whether that's five or whether that's twenty, like it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we got to do, what we got to do, and that's play football.
2: Mm, ah, that's how you talk well, about Kyle a teammate. Now, this is it, and now this is why I'm so excited to ask you this question. So, Kyron, we have all these prospects come in, guys like yours, peers of yours, who are going to go into the draft, and we always end the interview by saying, okay. 32 buildings across the league are watching, the GMs, the owners, the executives, the coaches, they're watching right now, and they're thinking about maybe drafting you. We're going to give you the mm-hmm. floor right now to look at the camera and to tell those people why they should take you in the 2022 NFL Draft. The floor is yours.
4: So I hit it on earlier, but I'm the most versatile back that um, has been in the, the draft, and especially in this draft, and, um, Many years, like I'm, I'm the guy that can line up, it, that can stay on the field all four downs. Whether that's lined up in the slot, whether that's line up out of the backfield catch routes, or whether that's lined up in the backfield run inside and outside zone, and also stay in for pass field. Like I don't think there is a complete back that can run the route tree, not just a five yard out, run the whole route tree out the slot, and then go in the backfield the next day or the next play and run the inside zone. Like I just think that um my my God-given abilities, my um, just the pure passion that I have for this game. It just creates a difference. It creates a difference from myself and those other guys. So um, come April 28th, April 29th, like whoever, whatever team gets me, they're going to get the best player. They're going to get the most dedicated player that's going to make sure that it, their team and their players and you know everybody's just on the right track to get better each and every day because that's how I view myself I view myself as a person who's gonna push each other push people each and every day to get better and I hope the same um I hope the same for the people who are around me so I just think that no matter what team that gets me or no matter what they saw on on um, the combine or anything like turn on the film they know exactly who I am I'm I'm a ball player this is what I didn't I've been doing since I was in second grade and this is all I love so um my whole heart's in this game, and I just and there's no way I can take it out. So
1: that's Kyron Williams, former Notre Dame running back, and uh we will look to hear his name called over the next few days. Uh, maybe Friday, second, third round, you know, third round, I think at best, you know, late third round probably at best. We will see. And then of course the draft will continue four through seven on uh on Saturday as well. We will take a timeout when we come back. Rapid fire. We'll talk more NFL draft during rapid fire and uh, some baseball, all different kinds of topics coming up on Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Who wants to have some fun? Rapid fire starts now on sports radio, 960 AM WSBT. And now your host, Sean Styers. Along with Jesse Styers tonight, it's Rapid Fire and Budweiser's weekday sports beat. We continue the uh, post-blue-gold. Oh, by the way, I need to mention this because this just came in um, just within the last, what, half hour or so. Notre Dame football picked up another commitment, defensive lineman, Bobakar Traor committed to Notre Dame. I'm sure I butchered that pronunciation. He is from Central Memorial – Catholic Memorial High School in Massachusetts. So, uh, 6'4", 250 pounds. That uh, just happened within the last 30 minutes or so. So, uh, we'll be talking more about that with Christian McCollum from irisportsdaily.com in our Thursday recruiting update tomorrow. Here on the show, but the Irish get another commitment. I believe that is three commitments since the blue gold game. Jesse Stires with me for rapid fire. So Jess, did you come out of the blue gold game feeling better, worse, or unchanged about the fighting Irish football team?
5: I felt pretty unchanged, honestly. Uh, You know, those games are designed to be competitive and not really to showcase, you know, what's what exactly is going to be run, you know, in, in the 2022 season. Um, offensively, it was, it was obvious that Reese didn't want to show very much, uh, which was kind of shown by the vanilla pass constants, but there are still like takeaways from the game, you know, things that I saw that, that, uh, I, that were a result. And I guess some of those would be that I was uneasy about Drew Pine's performance. Right. Obviously the picks were not good. Um, he did not look comfortable moving through his reads and that caused him to be a little bit late getting the ball out. Um, slow reads will then also lead to kind of rush mechanics, right? Because if your read is slow, you have to make up for it, and you start to rush things like your footwork, your arm, all that stuff. And that caused bad throws as well Mm -hmm. on some of the relatively easy routes. So um, that was – but that's that's Andrew – or sorry, that's Drew Pine. Uh, You know that he was probably going to be quarterback too, but he actually played better last year than what he showed – uh, in the spring game. So that's a little bit confusing. Maybe it was just an off day for him. He obviously had to play both quarterbacks, which is kind of unprecedented in a spring game. Right. Um, but then there's also positive takeaways. I was impressed by uh, Jadarion Price. Uh, he was very explosive, and that and that was seen through his home run speed on the screen. He took for 51 yards and for the touchdown. Um, what also impressed with his was his agility, uh, the ability to make cuts, along with being a guy who doesn't go down very easily. You know, it's not going to take... Yeah. Uh, just one guy to get him down and that's that's really good considering his speed and agility like i was kind of talking about usually those guys are lighter on their feet kind of easier to take down but he also kind of packs that punch as well so overall i can understand the hype around him you know he was the first running back taken in their in their draft i guess you could say and it, it showed for some uh, or lack of a better reason uh and then there was also uh defensively i liked what i saw out of jordan i think i'm going to say his last name wrong Batello. Even though some might say he doesn't have, you know, a home on the defense. He, he can play the Rover and the Viper, um, but he he really kind of laid to rest some of his coverage skills critics when he had the nice interception. Um, so I think he'll he'll have a role in the defense, but if it's not something that's definitive, I don't think it's something to worry about. Um, and then last, uh, I like the, the, what I saw from Jordan, or sorry, Brandon Joseph, um, he, he was really you know he's not a Kyle Hamilton obviously so it's it's hard or kind of unfair to give him that kind of comparison um, but his game more reminded me of Louie Gilman and I liked what he brought there's some ease or comfort kind of in that secondary
1: yeah and I mean uh, you know Brandon Joseph said one of the reasons he left Northwestern behind and and came to this situation at Notre Dame is because he wants to end up like Kyle Hamilton be a first round draft pick and You know, again, it's you know, there's there's not a direct comparison because I don't think you can really compare anyone to Hamilton because of the distinctness of his size and his unique skill set. But Brandon Joseph was was uh, he was pretty impressive out there. You know, really really sound tackler. That was the biggest thing that that stood out for him. He got to the ball quickly. As for me, overall, you know, obviously we've talked about it the last couple of days. I feel. Like, if I look at the defense, I definitely feel good about the defense. There no no real concerns that I see there. If I look at the offensive line, I feel pretty good about the offensive line. I like what you said about Jadarian Price. Feel good about the running backs. Overall, came away feeling pretty good about the wide receivers. That depth is, is going to be an issue. There's nothing they can do about that other than get a couple guys back healthy, Avery Davis and Joe Wilkins, and maybe go out and bring somebody in through the transfer portal. Drew Pine, though I, you know, again, I realize it's one game, but this is a guy who's been around for a while now, and he's played in this system for a while now. You know, there's really no change to the system. It is, it is Tommy Reese. You know, maybe tweaks to the system. That's it. I, I came away feeling worse. I, I, I came away definitely feeling more uneasy about Drew Pine if he is thrust into a situation where he does have to play next season. Now, you know, can you? potentially you know hide some things with Drew Pine with with a good running game and all that kind of stuff in a real game because you do have a full offensive line sure sure but he's got to make better decisions and all the things that you talked about he's just he's got to do some basic stuff better and you can't turn the ball over like that and i definitely came away feeling very uneasy about the kicking game, you know the field goals specifically, you know like I know people talk about the punting and those things. They don't they don't even have the the actual punter on campus right now because he's transferring in from Harvard this summer. But place kickers got to be better. That you know you you have to hit chip shot field goals. That's all there is to it because you're going to find yourself in some close games this season and you can't be missing field goals inside of 40 yards and that's what those guys did. Out there, they've got to be a lot more consistent and got to get a little more range to their legs. So that's that's something that can be worked on, you know, and that's also something that Jonathan Doerr, you know, when they they brought in the mental specialist a a few years ago, that seemed to kind of help him out. But they've decided that that they're not going to go that route right now. But those are the those are the two biggest things. You know, the biggest red flags for me is what happens with Drew Pine as the potential backup quarterback in the kicking game. Got to make the field goals. Got to make the field goals. All right, on to the NFL draft. First round tomorrow night starts at 8 o'clock tomorrow night. We expect to hear Kyle Hamilton's name called at some point tomorrow night in the first round. My question for you, would you have any hesitation drafting Hamilton in the first round or high in the first round maybe specifically because of the position that he plays safety.
5: You know, I would have no issues drafting Kyle Hamilton high or in the first round in general. We have spoke about it before. I think Kyle Hamilton is a tremendous athlete um, and checks all of the boxes when it comes to the safety position, man coverage over the middle on big tight ends or running backs out of the backfield, deep over the top coverage, sideline to sideline range, and the ability to fill downhill and be a sure tackler in the run game. Oh, and to top it off, he has a nice frame. You know, he's over—he's six foot two, uh, 225 pounds. That's big for a safety. And with how the game is trending in today's NFL, which is a pass-happy league, you have to have quality safeties when playing guys like Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Tom Brady, Dak Prescott, etc. So I—I I think he checks all the boxes. You know, I—I I don't. Um, see why why one you wouldn't want to have a quality safety if he could be uh, you know taken in the first round, and two him being a top pick because of what I was just talking about.
1: If a guy is a stud football player, he's a stud football player. You know, and it, I, I talked about this earlier in the show. This this really is like the conversation with Quentin Nelson four years ago when Quentin Nelson he's a guard. Oh, do you take a guard? that high and you know all that different stuff the the Colts took him at number 6 and i don't think there were any real critics of the Colts taking him at number 6 but the conversation was as as great as quentin nelson looked in college do you take a guard that high because it is not considered a premium position it's not a quarterback it's not a left tackle it's not an edge rusher you know those three premium types that you usually see go in the top 10 he was none of those things he ends up going sixth overall. The Colts really needed to upgrade their offensive line. They draft Quentin Nelson. What did they do? They became one of the better offensive lines in the NFL for a couple of years because Quentin Nelson goes on to be a first-team All-Pro three times, and, and the only time that he wasn't a first-team All-Pro, he was a second-team All-Pro. There's, there's obviously a very strong argument for him being the best offensive lineman in the NFL over that four-year period, you know, the, the time that he's been in the NFL so far. So he answered that, and it's really the same with Kyle Hamilton. Kyle Hamilton is, is a great player. The only two knocks that you have that anyone should really have on Kyle Hamilton right now are, or the only true knock is, you know, you know the 40-time the, the thing. But at the same time, Marcus Freeman has talked about, well, you know, the 40-time is still valid because you want to be able to compare one player to another – but they also put GPSs on these guys, and they know how quickly, you know, once the ball is in the air, they know how quickly he can get to the ball. You know, the, the kind of ground that he can cover in the time with the ball in the air. All these different things. So, you know, there's there's a lot of different data beyond traditional 40-yard dash time. And just because Kyle Hamilton plays safety does not mean that, you know, that That he should fall, that you should knock him for that, because the guy is a very unique football player. He's a six foot four safety, and he covers ground from sideline to sideline. Really, maybe the the biggest knock that you can find beyond the forty time is you know like one on one man, you know man to man coverage skill that kind of thing. But you know you you don't want your safeties having to play press and you know man and all that kind of stuff that often. Anyway, the guy is a great. Safety center fielder. He gets downhill. He gets the ball quickly. So you know, I don't think there's any reason to knock him. I mean, do do you do you see any any true flaws in his game, Jess? When you look at him,
5: you know, I really don't. I guess you know that the thing that you might always worry about is is injury, especially considering he had one, you know, recently, and and if that is going to continue to trend. Um, but other than that, I really don't see any other flaws and you mentioned the 40 time and it's like you said it's not all about how you are directly straight line speed it's how fast are you in your cuts getting in and out of your cuts getting out of your cuts you know into into coverage and so if you make up that ground faster it's not really a matter of you know that's all sideways lateral movement that's not straight line movement so I really agreed with what you were saying. And I think it puts that argument to rest. And that is the biggest knock on him right now is, is all of a sudden he had one bad, not even bad, just slower 40 time. And all of a sudden it's, is he even a top 10 pick anymore? Is it worth taking a safety? Um, I just think it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah.
1: I mean, and it is a guy who was, you know, coming off, you know, missing time because of a knee injury. He, you know, he had, you know, the, surgically repaired and all that kind of stuff his medicals have obviously checked out but you you just don't know you know how that may be impacted his ability you know to to run a 40 a couple of different times but again we know this guy can play football so I don't think there are any real concerns bigger picture NFL draft does the lack of big quarterback prospects impact how you feel about this year's NFL draft
5: um, the lack of quarterback prospects has no impact on how I feel about the draft. Um, well, I'm going to be honest with you. There are about three things that get me excited for the draft. The first one being the first round of the draft, especially like the top 10 picks. Um, those are always exciting to see um, who the Cowboys draft, especially with their first and second round picks. Right. Uh, and then third of all where the notre dame draft eligible players end up landing and of course i hope that some of them fall with the cowboys so (laughs) i think the the quarterback class would impact me if the cowboys were more you know planning to draft a quarterback this year or needed a quarterback but you know they they have found what they deem to be their quarterback especially (laughs) with how much they're paying him so I, i think it's just more of like i said the things i was talking about of the excitement of the first round, who the Cowboys are drafting, and then where Notre Dame players ended up get drafting.
1: You know, I don't think the Cowboys are going to get Kyle Hamilton, although I saw you sent me something a little bit ago saying they want to move up pretty badly to 14th. I wonder who they're eyeballing at 14. You know, like offensive line... Wide receiver and edge rusher are the three positions I kind of keep hearing with them. Do you have any inklings of, of who they could be looking at, you know, trying to move up 10 spots?
5: You know, I feel like if you're going with a, an offensive lineman, you really wouldn't move up uh, too Doesn't far like to it. get them. Because in the first round, outside of like the maybe like the top tackle or top, you know, guard that you see in the top 10, the first round is more about like your premium picks. So yeah quarterbacks the the guys who are the, the money makers i guess you could say the running backs wide receivers quarterbacks uh those kind of guys maybe a good edge rusher uh a, a linebacker you don't really you know so i don't think they're moving up to get alignment so i think it becomes more <laughs> of what you were talking about of wide receiver um or potentially an edge rusher you know i they'd let uh andy or randy gregory walk uh they still have demarcus lawrence um, I don't think, in my opinion, at least you draft, you move up to take a wide receiver. There's still going to be, uh, at where they're at right now, some solid wide receivers left. I don't know if they're maybe specifically targeting Chris Olave um, at wide receiver. That's the only thing I could think of if they wanted to move up. So it has to be of a premium pick. You don't move up uh, to 14th and, and just sit there and take an offensive lineman. I don't, I don't know
1: how, how I would feel about a, a wide receiver In the first round that that offensive line really needs to be addressed right now. You know, I just I don't know. How would you feel about Kevin Austin like wearing a star like third, fourth round Kevin Austin? What would that do for you?
5: Uh, You know, I I, I like his speed and I think he could do something. The Cowboys like to use kind of like a a slot guy who's more of a, you know, cover off the top type type, of uh, wide receiver. So if they did, it would be for that reason. I, they let also that a decent amount of wide receivers go this season. Um, so, you know, you, you could still draft a guy like that later, uh, to fill a good roster spot and a guy who could potentially make the, you know, the 53 man roster, uh, mainly because of what he can do with his speed.
1: Yeah. I, um, I think that he's a little bit too unpolished still, you know, needs to mm-hmm. need, needs to be fit. I, I, I really think like that for Kevin Austin's own good, he should have come back to Notre Dame one more year. I just I, I see like some equanimous St. Brown there, you know, like another year would have done him, you know, really well to come back and and been a higher draft pick and and I think it would would have gone a long way, you know, to extending his career. So I just don't know about that. In terms of you know the actual question, I guess that I asked how the lack of quarterbacks impacts how I feel. It's just, there's definitely less buzz about this draft because typically quarterback conversation drives the draft. There has been quarterback conversation. Malik Willis, Kenny Pickett, they they just don't do it for me. Like, I see Kenny Pickett, I I, I said earlier this week, I would not draft any of these guys in the first round. When I look at Malik Willis, I think there's just too much Trey Lance. You know, like everyone sees the ceiling there, but he is far from being a finished product and you've got some time you know another guy you're going to have to develop he's going to have to probably sit for at least a year and then when I when I look at Kenny Pickett I think he's probably already reached his ceiling because you know he was he was at Pitt it that was his best year I think that was his fifth year this past you know he was there for a long time and he was just an average quarterback at Pitt and so in a bad year in the ACC all of a sudden Kenny Pickett has this big year and he turns into the big quarterback prospect of the draft. I would just not feel comfortable taking any of these guys in the first round. So, and that's and it does kind of you know the the lack of the quarterbacks does kind of impact it for me because again, there's there's no, you know, there's no Trevor Lawrence, there's no stud at the top of this draft that that anyone's talking about. So, it's just it's it's a little bit more, you know, there are some good players out there, but it's just a little bit more lackluster because there aren't any real true quarterback prospects, you know, at the, at the top of this draft. I think I think that there's some, you know, like Desmond Ritter, someone's probably going to get good value out of Desmond Ritter in the, you know, the second round and he could end up being the best of all these guys. So, I don't know. We'll take a timeout. We come back Got a little baseball talk and more when we continue with Rapid Fire on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Rapid Fire in Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat continue. Time for a couple of uh, baseball questions that we've got here. Jesse Styers, Sean Styers. Fill in the blank, Jess. It is blank that baseball could move second base in by a foot in an attempt to encourage more stolen bases in the game.
5: It is a tremendous idea that baseball is considering moving second base uh, inwards by 13 and a half inches, and I'm all for it. Contrary to popular belief, uh, the distance between first and second has never been 90 feet like uh, traditionally thought. Uh, it's been 88 feet and one and a half inches. The new rule will putting it to 87 feet. Um, in my opinion, I believe this will also increase, you know, not only steals but also doubles and guys kind of maybe beating out ground balls. The change will give the hitters and offense an advantage. You'll see extra, uh, more hits, extra base hits, and runs scored. Um, I think it's clear that the MLB is trying to follow suit and make the game more offensive-driven in order to entertain or draw in more fans, uh, similar to what we've seen in the in the NFL recently. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain, um, but yeah, I, I just. Or, or i guess uh i i think overall it's going to be something that is has a good impact on the game cuz me myself i like to see uh the offense have not more of an advantage but it be more neutral cuz i think the game is so driven right now by by pitching and i think it the, you know the the swings and misses the the lack of extra base hits is boring to to the to most fans
1: yeah i it- I didn't realize this whole, you know, difference in the distance of the bases until you sent me this article the other day saying that they were going to do this. And as someone, you know, who out there, you know, tried to put together, you know, baseball diamonds for practice and all that different kind of stuff when you were younger, it's like It always seemed like second base was all, you know, it's like, I I kind of understand this now, you know, (laughs) like trying to set that up exactly. It it always seemed it it was just weird. I could, you know, it was like second base never seemed like it was where it was supposed to be. And it all makes sense now. Um, But, you know, they're going like they do with with whenever they try all these different rules, like with uh, the pitch clock that they've been doing right now. They're going to experiment with this in the minor leagues, you know. So they're going to be doing that. But I, I think it's a great idea because analytics has all but taken away the stolen base. There have been there's been a little bit more of an uptick in stolen bases the last couple of years, basically because you know, like if you go back to to Billy Bean and and trying to capitalize on market, you know, in in, in equities in the game. You know, that's where the stolen base, you know, kind of went away. And it's funny that Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team is coming in this week. And, of course, Steve Stanley, you know, among that team. And I remember when Steve was drafted by the Oakland A's and I talked to him about a year or so later when he was in the minor leagues and I asked him about, you know, his stolen base. And he's like, well, they really don't want to steal him bases. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and it didn't seem to make sense because here's like a fast guy, you know, base dealer, all this different kind of stuff. And that's, you know, and here we are now 20 years later, they, they need more action in the game. They need more excitement in the game. You know, they, they need that more than cutting down the pace, you know, trying to, cut down the time of the game and all these different things. They just need more things happening. So I think this makes a lot of sense, the you know the fact that they're trying to bring back more of the stolen base in the game, and I think it could potentially do a lot for the game of baseball. All right, another baseball question. We got the classic Kyle Schwarber tirade over Angel Hernandez's bad strike zone Sunday night, and afterwards, Phillies manager Joe Girardi said, It may be time to consider robo-umps behind the plate. Do you buy or sell the idea of robo-umpires, Jess?
5: Um, I buy the idea of robot uh, home plate umpires uh, to call balls and strikes. Too much is on the line in these games, and one bad call in an at-bat can completely change the trajectory of said at-bat. My new favorite data analytics is the umpire scorecards that are released today after games. I've Uh sent you these before. Uh, they're on a Twitter that goes by at, um, scorecards um, and said cor- scorecards break down a few things called ball accuracy, called strike ac- accuracy, meaning, you know, the accuracy of balls and strikes uh, compared to called true balls and strikes uh, impact of missed calls. The top three most impactful blown calls, whether it be ball or strike, an overall factor uh, that says, you know, based on the calls, what team was at an advantage and by how much. Um, so, for example, the other night, Angel Hernandez had a 77% called strike accuracy, uh, 94% called ball accuracy, and in a 1-0 game in which Milwaukee won, he, his overall factor for that game was plus 0.8. So he basically his calls are what gave Milwaukee that game. Yeah. Um, so I, I just think when when you start seeing the numbers and how these things are broken down and, like I was saying, how bad calls can impact a game, I think it's you know I'm I'm for it you know soccer does it with the VR um, I think football should do it when with the chip in the in the ball to you know if it breaks the first down plane or breaks the touchdown plane instead of it being an eyeball thing I just think if you want the competitiveness and you know you have people almost now now betting on these things you have to have as much accuracy as possible.
1: Yeah, we have instant replay because they have the technology to get the calls right. You know, we have instant replay because they want the calls right. They want to know, was it really safe or out? You know, because it it changes the game. You know, like the Galarraga perfect game in Detroit that was blown a few years back. If you had instant replay, then they could have changed that call. He would have had a perfect game. You, you They use technology in all these different sports so they can get the call right right that's what it comes down to and the robo umps you're trying to get the call right and it would basically be an umpire standing behind the plate and the digital thing tells him ball strike so you've still got a human making the call back there but you've got technology telling him what call to make and then obviously he makes safer out calls on the basis so I, there's no reason not to use it if we can do it with instant replay The bottom line is you always want to get the call right. And so I I think that that they need to do this so that we get rid of, you know, this just some of this horrific – you know, there are some umpires who are – all these guys are are doing the best they can, but some of them are just not good enough, and they need to change that. (laughs) They've got the technology. All right, I'm a little bit behind now, Jess, already, so we've got to wrap it up. Good stuff. I'll talk to you this weekend.
5: Sounds good. Thank you.
1: All right. We're brought to you by Budweiser, Tim Growl State Farm Insurance, Barnaby's of Mishawaka and Granger, and the Food Bank of Northern Indiana. WSBT, South Bend.